This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. episode 254 of the fly fishing consultant podcast this episode is brought to you by hatch outdoors and features matt supinski matt is the owner and operator of gray drake lodge in michigan we sit down at a hotel lobby in georgetown to record his life in fly fishing you may want to take notes on this one he has that much good information to share please bear with us this episode was recorded live in a hotel lobby the original microphone did not record well, so we used a backup microphone, which still has some dodgy bits to it. I've known Matt for about 20 years now, and this is my first chance to sit down with him to record his stories. This episode is brought to you by Hatch Outdoors, providing premium quality fly fishing reels and products to make your angling endeavors extraordinary through top-notch design and innovation. In addition to reels and spools, Hatch Outdoors also makes pliers nippers, knot strengthening devices, fly lines, backing, fluorocarbon leader, and tip material, in addition to soft goods. I plan on buying a new three-quarter sleeve shirt with my holiday earnings next week while I use my 15% off coupon code. Coupon code? Yes, here's a gift for all of those items I just mentioned that are not reels or spools. 
Shop at Hatch Outdoors through January 31, 2020 using promo code Rob Snow White and receive 15% off. So use your holiday cash and get some Hatch Outdoor gear while you can. Promo code R-O-B-S-N-O-W-H-I-T-E.com. This offer excludes reels and spools. And we got family here. My brother-in-law is in Middleburg, Virginia. My my niece is right up the road on Wisconsin Avenue. Nice. She's a doctor. So we got a lot of family. Plus, what's kind of cool about this place, I used to run the Georgetown Inn 25, 30 years ago. Really? I ran this hotel. So it's bringing deja vu because I was a hotelier in Washington back in the 80s. You've been in the hospitality business for a while. Yes. So um, I was in the hotel business in D.C. for 10 years. Wow. And I was with one Washington hotel group. I used to manage the Georgetown Inn. Took the Sheridan, Washington. I was in the Omni Shoreham. I lived right around the corner here on MacArthur Boulevard for almost five years. So this is kind of creepy coming back here all the time. And I walk through these doors, and I'm like, I used to run this place every single day, seven days a week. So Are there any secret passageways yeah, and hidden entrances? Yeah, all kinds of stuff back here. But How old is this building? It's, it's quite an old building. It was built like uh, turn of the century, really, okay. 1900s, early 1900s. So. And it's cool they renovated it, but it's kind of fun to walk around there. Georgetown's change is actually uh, pretty hip now. It's really gotten... When I was leaving, it was kind of deteriorating, and now it's... It's, it's very upstairs, very Rodeo Drive looking. Yeah. So it's kind of cool to walk around in my barber boots, and I walk right down the street, and there's the barber so, store. So. Yeah. yeah, so that's it. So I have, I'm having a good time here reminiscing. It's like deja vu, but that's what I'm doing here. And is there a celebrity doppelganger you have for people that haven't seen you in books or magazines that they can picture? You can make it up. It doesn't actually have to be accurate. So what do you what do you mean? Do you, is there someone that they say, "Hey, you look like somebody"? Right now, people tell me I look like the Wet Bandit from Home Alone, but my hair is like bandit. like this. Uh, I don't know. You know, people. Some people say I look like Sting. Some people say I look like Trump. Some people say I look like everybody. So I don't know. So um, I I've known you about twenty years now. From when I worked at Orvis Tyson's, and you would come in with your wife, and she was also local to the area. Yeah, she's uh, actually she's from New York, but I met her when she was a lobbyist on Capitol Hill, and uh, she was working for Electronic Industries of America. And we used to we met, and we met at a place called Sign of the Whale. Yes, baby, back then. M Street. And I was working at the Omni Shoreham Hotel as a food and beverage director, and we had clay courts, tennis clay courts, and I was an avid tennis player. By the way, I see your uh, Ohio State shirt here. Uh, I'm an Ohio State guy. I played soccer. Ohio State, so uh, and I played a lot of tennis there. So we used to play clay court tennis, and then she worked. Uh, she lived on Capitol Hill, so I would uh, every Friday I'd get out, run out of these hotels, and give them my BMW. I was a metrosexual back then, wearing Armani suits and cool dude with BMWs and stuff like that. Total difference from where I'm now in the woods in, in Michigan. I'd pick her up at three o'clock, and we'd head up, and we'd have three cheese wine. On a blanket, went on Falling Springs Run, and then we go fish the Latour, and then we stay in a bed and breakfast, and stay at the Allenberry. And so every weekend, I was either in Pennsylvania, or I'd go down to Mossy Creek and fish Mossy Creek with old guys like Harry Murray and people like that in the old days. Or I'd go up to Beaver Creek in Hagerstown and Patuxent River and Catoctin Creek and. 
So I think I saw you one time. Big Springs. Big Springs. Yeah. I noticed. I was driving in. I saw your hair. Yeah. The blonde hair, which is what Richie <laughs> called it. It was Blonde Friday yesterday, not Black Friday. I was like, that's Matt Supinski. Of all the places I'm going fishing today, he's in this 80-foot stretch of the ditch. <laughs> and then it was just Brookies. That's yeah. the revitalized section yeah, compared yeah. to what it used to be. Yeah. So, so I'd be there almost like every weekend. So I tried to get. I tried to fish on Mondays, and because I was the hotel business kept me busy. But I, if I did, if I didn't have the weekend off, I would fish on Mondays and Tuesdays. And on Mondays, I fished the Latour uh, Spring Run, which is dear to my soul, which has had its tribulations lately with the fish kill and all that stuff. But I. I Befriended, uh, well, I actually bought my friendship with Vince Marinero of in the uh, Dry Fly Code, Modern Ring of the Rise, and I met him there on, on the on the Latorts Spring wow. Run, and for about a year before he really got sick with cancer, uh, I would fish with him almost every Monday, and I learned a lot from Vince about spring creeks and tying little jacids and minutiae. So a lot of my Tactics are honed by the intricacies of spring creeks, which if you could fish spring creeks, you could fish like any creek. Other than you don't learn how to cast well, so you need to move to bigger water or salt water or big tailwaters. But uh, so yeah, I spent a lot of time with Ed Shank up by Bonnie McCrow and Vince Marinero and those guys. So I've had a lot of good tutelage and. Uh, we have a summer home in the Catskills on the Neversink River, which is a ground zero river with, with Hewitt and Theodore Gordon. So on my mother's sister's, uh, my stepmother's side, we have a summer home there. And I got to know Lee Wolf and talked to him quite a bit about Atlantic Salmon and Art Lee, who both passed away. Now they were the mentors of Atlantic's. And then, I mean, I've lived a storybook life of mentors, and then I go to Michigan. And who do I end up fishing with on the Muskegon chasing caddis is Carl Richards of Swisher Richards Selective yeah. Trophy. So this, all this stuff is in my Nexus book, my new Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus. But I just like was touched by the golden wand where I went. I just ran into really good people because I always sought out people with knowledge and people that were intelligent and people that took the game more than just fishing. And today, unfortunately... The sport of fly fishing has turned into, I really don't know how to describe it, but it's not what it used to be. And I'm not trying to sound like an old fart, but the bottom line is we're not paying attention to history and legacy and the lore. We're totally focused on it, almost like a... Instant a, gratification. A, instant gratification, and almost like a mechanical sport. It's mechanical. It's like our daily lives. We just treat it like, got to do this, got to cast farther, got to do this better. It's just, we need to just slow down, absorb the past recognize the past, chill out and have fun and just relax and realize there's so much more about fly fishing, not just, you know. When I look at a fly, my, my, my mind goes crazy because I know there's four, five, six inventors of that type of pattern. And everything has been invented in the last four, four or five hundred years. So history is really important. So I, I wish today that more anglers would focus on nature, the fish, the history, the lore, uh, and it just opens up your experience for fly fishing so much more. We've tried to make celebrities out of fly fishing. There's never, if you want to be a celebrity, go on TV or, or become a politician or become a millionaire CEO or, or invent something. But fly fishing was supposed to be a quiet, relaxing sport. And today we treat it like, like everybody's got a buzz and everybody's got a hashtag. And, it, and it's just a bunch of bull crap because it's not meant to be that way. 
And if your passion is about the fish, your passion is about the outdoors, passion is about, that's why I like Spring Creeks, I like Amish country, I like, I watch things, I, I observe things. This is a sport for observers. If you want, if you want to be a celeb, go on the Bass Pro Circuit and, you know, get on stage and win a million dollars. This will never happen. And you're in the sport because of your passion for the sport and mostly the fish. And that's what I think the direction of fly fishing needs to go. So that, I think I answered your second question all at the moment. I'm having an espresso right now. So that's this fine. Just fueled me a little bit. Who's the first person to put a rod in your hand? So it was my father who was um, from Poland in the Polish army. He was on September 1st, 1939. He was on the border when Nazis invaded Poland. He was a colonel in the Polish army. Got devastated. Fought World War II. Fought, went to concentration camps, POW camps. Was a partisan, um, went all the way to Berlin on a Russian tank when the Russians recaptured Berlin in World War II, the World War II ended, and my dad then went to England, and he was in the British Army. And when he was in England in the British Army as a Polish soldier, but they took him because he was an Allied member, he was an officer and he had to go to the officers' clubs, and they had officers' clubs on the River Avon and the River Tess very hollow chalk streams in England, and he learned the art of fly fishing properly with a bamboo rod, with a bottle of scotch tucked under his elbow, and, um, you know, that's the way you learn how to do it. And it almost became like a religion to him, and then when I was six years old, he gave me one of these old beat-up hardy cane rods that he had, and taught me how to fly cast, and taught me how to do things, and... Uh, we used to fish, and I grew up in Niagara Falls, New York, in upstate New York. So we used to fish all the little tiny creeks in southern Allegheny Mountains, like Cataraugus and Wiscoy, Eastcoy, Genesee River, all that whole Lake Erie watershed, Allegheny Mountain watershed. We'd fish every weekend, like religion. So I would fish a Mickey Finn, was my favorite fly, a Mondo Minnow, and all the little things like that. And he would go one way, like, it was almost like, um, uh, um, the river runs through it where dad would get the creels out we had little basket weave creels and he'd go one way and I'd go another way and we'd meet back at the car at dark and it was always back then we harvested fish because that's the thing to do if you're a European you come home and you make you know trout wrapped in bacon or trout almondine or trout meunier and you know just everything was a culinary event you know so We'd come home and he would always get the biggest brown trout and I was like, why could he do that? So I just couldn't, and he wasn't very good at teaching me. He was a very headstrong man and he figured that if I wanted to learn it, then I'd burn myself into learning it. So he would teach me to cast a little bit, but then he says, figure it out, you know? So I was getting sick and tired of him catching these big brown trout all the time in these little creeks. So I found out about little red worm midwigglers, little worms, and um, and salted minnows, and so I would have a little basket, a little bag of them, and tucked away in my creel by my fly boxes. I would top my Mickey Finn off with a little red wiggler worm, and all of a sudden I started catching more trout than he did. And he didn't like it, and then one day he found that little can of worms in my little creel, and I caught holy hell for that, because I was a liar, I was a dried size, they say, coach. Heathen. So heathen, yeah, I was just, I, I just broke the religion, you know, it was, it was sacrilege, I thought I was going to get out. But, so that was my early beginnings, and then when I was eight years old, we moved back to Poland, because my dad wanted to get his master's degree, 
I lived on a farm. So my first chapter of my Nexus book is all about my life in Poland on the Baltic Sea on a farm that had a river called the Wiefsza River that ran through it. And um, we had, my dad always told me when we were going back to Poland, because I didn't want to go back to Poland, because I said, Jesus, it's a communist country, there's no McDonald's, there's no television, there's no, all my TV channels, I don't know what I'm going to do, I'm losing my mind. He said, don't worry, there's a big surprise waiting for you. And when I got there, we had, oh my God, probably about 1,500 acres of property on the Baltic Sea, and we had a river that came off the Baltic, and it had sea-run brown trout, and it had resident brown trout, and it had Atlantic salmon, and that's when I lost my mind and my uncle was a gay warden and he had hardy bamboo rods and English tide flies and so I literally fished for brown trout Atlantic salmon just about every day and it was just a passion and it just went to obsession and here I am my seventh book it's total obsession and it's like the first day I started fishing so if you love something you'll never work a day in your life and so I left the hotel business I've been doing this now for 25 years, and I guided almost 235 days last year, and so it's I'm still working like a dog. Was there the, the exact moment you're like, we, we got to leave D.C.? Was there just like the stress just got to you? Yeah, actually, it, was, it wasn't as much stress. It was just I had so many job opportunities other places. So I lived for a while in, in San Francisco, in Indianapolis, um, other places, and then I wound up in... Grand Rapids, Michigan, working at the Amway Grand Plaza Hotel, because I met the owners of Amway when I was at the Omni Hotel in Indianapolis, and I went and interviewed for my job, which is right on the Grand River, and as I was interviewing with the owners, I saw a guy catch about a 15-pound steelhead right outside the window, and I saw that, and I said, holy shit, I'm going to live here, and and then I had the Paramarquette hour up the road, I had the Rogue River up the road, I had the Muskegon River up the road, I had paradise for steelhead, Atlantic salmon, Pacific salmon, blah, 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 brown trout, rainbow trout, brook trout. It was like nirvana. And I could actually make really good money like I did in the big cities. And then eventually I just got burned out. Couldn't take it anymore because you're working seven days a week. Sometimes you go two months without day off in the hotel business. It's just brutal. And uh, we opened up the Great Drake Lodge and we've been doing it for 25 years and we're still got celebrities that come to our place, got people from all over the world coming. I'm on a river with trout and salmon, so how could you beat that? If you're gonna throw a dart at Michigan to hit Grand Rapids, where would that be? So it'd be like if you've got the mitten, which Michigan is one giant mitten, it's like uh, below the, the, the pinky finger. So you're getting the, the Lake Michigan? So we're right on Lake Michigan, okay. yeah. So we're like directly across the lake from like uh, was Milwaukee, um, so we're we're really close. We're you could be in Lake Michigan like forty minutes from our place. Yeah. Were you that round when the guy caught the steelhead with the wedding ring on it this summer? Did you hear about that? I did not hear about that. No. So a guy was getting divorced on the Chicago side and took off his wedding ring and just took a zip tie and put it on the tail of a steelhead and just let it go. And baby. Two weeks later, someone on the other side caught the fish and was like, what the hell? There's a kidding? ring on that fish. I did not know that. That's a good fun fact. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. So that's uh, it's been the that's been the journey that I've been on, and uh, it still goes crazy today. So are you still into the movement without motion and flies? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, because, you know, the, well, today's materials are so just incredible. I mean, with all the synthetics that Hairline has, you know, all the senio synthetics and 
And now with all the new, you know, with the game changer and all the, you know, the double deceivers and the drunken disorders and articulation and movements and, and Arctic Fox and Deerier and, and Schlappen and, and Rabbit strips um, and all the new funky Predator wraps, Icy, Ripple Flash, I mean, it's all movement. If that fly has to look good in the water, and if it doesn't move and it just stays stationary in the water against the current, it's moving, it's moving, and it's breathing. So that's, everybody's doing it. You know, that's the big gig now, and it's always been the big gig. Before, it was rabbit strips and schlopping and deer hair to a certain extent. And now we've taken that to either, you know, our fox and more, you know, more materials that breathe and move. And, yeah, that's still the gig. Everything I design, I... I have a jar, a big gallon of water. I have in the tank with the with the bubbler and, the, and this current modifier, and I look at it the way it swims in the water, and if it looks good to me, then hopefully it'll look good to the fish. How have two-handed rods changed fishing up there in the last eight, ten to fifteen years with the added yeah. influence of the, the new lines to go with them? Yeah. So yeah, two-handed rods today are everything. If you're steelhead and salmon fisherman, uh, I don't think I fish single-handed rods anymore. To be honest with you. Um, uh, I fish switch rods a lot if we're nymphing, you know, your egg pair like steelheading if you're nymphing eggs, you know, stoneflies, caddis, salmon river gig, switch rod is all you need, like 11 7 switch rod. If you're spade casting, traditional spade casting, you know, you got the, the traditional 14, 15 foot rods with European style action, or you have some traditional Scottish action. What does that um, mean for someone that might not know? So, so traditional action spay rods are basically rods that you have to learn how to spay cast with, okay? That means how to put the full bend when you're setting up your anchor and you're setting up your mouse and you're setting up your D-loop, that rod has to be flexed all the way through the butt, through the entire system. So you really have to spend time learning how to spay cast. Whereas Euro models are meant to cast quicker and not load up as much and be more tip flex oriented where you're powering these heads, these sinking heads, you know, uh, long um, sink tips uh, with a very quick bottom handed stroke, the underhand stroke that was a Scandinavian stroke. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Developed by Mortensen and uh, you know, the Loop people and those guys. The traditional casting is with a long belly, triangle, double taper, spay line that didn't have a spot where you stop it on your tip. Now everything is built Skagit style where you stop the line at this area and then it's it's like loaded up for you. Before you had to learn how to load up a rod by the sweet spot in the line, now it's defined for you as an area where it goes from black to green or black to pink or whatever. And now the Scandi lines are very similar to Skagit lines. They have a thicker upper head. They load like a T-shaped triangle shape. They load a lot easier, but the traditional, you know, Lee Wolf triangle taper, old long belly double taper lines, 
full spay lines were pretty hard to master. You had to spend a lot of time in the water mastering and find out where the sweet spot is to load up your spay line. Uh, yeah, so everybody's, if you got the room, you're doing it. If you're fishing tiny little rivers like on the Erie trip, some people still use single handers and some you could only use single handers. But switch rods today, pretty much an 11 foot switch rod that could fish any tributary, whether it's Erie, Ontario, Michigan, anywhere. And then I even use like, uh, you know, I have a couple sweet rods like the Thomas and Thomas. I got an 11 foot three weight that I use for trout fishing, for nymphing. I have 11 foot four weights, I have 11 foot five weights. So Euro nymphing rods are long and, and quick at the tip. And um, it, that, that two-handed revolution has gone pretty far. And where, you know, dry fly fishing is a single-handed rod proposition still. So you need to manipulate the fly, you need to move the fly, bend it. So you're still going to be double hauling, casting a single-handed rod. But for big salmon to cover water, big steelhead to cover water, you're missing out on a whole opportunity to cover a lot of water and to get the drift and presentation of the fly with a two-handed rod. All right. I'm going to have to ask this question. You were the first person I ever saw photographed with a rod on their shoulder. Where did that idea come from? Well, you know... And now that's the thing on Instagram. It's a thing on Instagram. And if you look at the front cover, this issue of Fly Fisherman Magazine, you'll see my client, Jessica DiLorenzo, at the Steelhead issue of Fly Fisherman. That she caught that fish with me on the Muskegon River December last year, and she's a very very attractive lady. She's an incredible photographer. She did the photography for my Chapter Eleven Nexus on Sea Run Brown Trout. She's on the cover, and her rod is on the shoulder. And uh, I put it there because I I wanted to get the fish, the person, and the rod and reel in it. And sometimes when you cup that rod in your hands, you can't see it, um, you lose the fish because you're taking care of the rod. So the goal was not to lose the fish in the water, was to forget about the rod, it's in the background. You know, it's like you taking a picture in front of something, don't worry, it's gonna be there, let's worry about you. So it's about either not have to worry about the rod if you plant it somewhere pretty good. So the rod on the shoulder is is a cool way to do it because you get to see the rod and the, and the fly or whatever that caught the fish. So I, I just came up with it and mostly out of fear of breaking the rod or losing the rod in the water or somebody screwing up something. The, the people on the edge of boats in a fathom of water doing it make me kind of nervous. I would wouldn't do, I wouldn't advise that. And there's people that do that in some very sketchy situations where when we were steelhead fishing two weeks ago, if your reel got minimally wet, it would have frozen solid. So I uh, just always have a spare with you yeah. in case it gets in the water. But yeah, it's, it's fun. I, then I started doing a lot with the mouth and the teeth, too. Um, that really screws up your grips, especially if you got good teeth. So I started to stop doing that because my corks had a lot of teeth marks in them. Uh, but anyways, it's kind of cool to let people show you what caught the fish. Everybody wants to know what you catch it on. What rod, what line, where are So there's just a picture of everything, right? Yeah. There you go. All right. So what's been the seasonalities up there? You said it's, you got so we're, every kind of salmonid pretty much right. available to you throughout the year, if the water's flowing. Yeah, so we, you know, I, I looked at, I look at, you know, I think people on the East Coast, they knew what we have up in Michigan. And, and I have so many, my clients usually come from Boston, New York, Pennsylvania, D.C., Virginia, uh, because once they come to Michigan, they realize you can do everything all the time, anytime. And it's, it's a 
we don't have one river, the Salmon River, where everybody flocks to, or Oracle Church, or, uh, and I, I grew up in Niagara Falls, so I know these rivers well, but in the last 20 years, the, the amount of people that go there is just absolutely insanity, and the fishing has deteriorated, in my opinion, it's not what it used to be, for a lot of different reasons, global climate change is one of them, invasive species is another big one, quagga mussels, zebra mussels, blah, 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 blah. But, uh, and pressure, gets, you go to Salmon River today, it's like crazy pressure. And when I fished it back then, you know, Douglaston was just starting. and It still got a lot of pressure, but there were a lot more fish. So now with climate change and um, invasive species, it's really tough to hit it right. But anyways, you still do it because you love it. Michigan has over 160 wild trout rivers. That's a lot of, uh, excuse me, not trout rivers, uh, steelhead rivers probably has thousands of trout streams. It has more miles of cold water trout streams, salmon, and steelhead rivers than probably anywhere on the planet. It has more fresh water on more, on the, more than anywhere on the planet, except for maybe Russia and Lake Baikal. We have four Great Lakes, Lake Superior, Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, and part of Lake Erie. We have more inland lakes than any, probably more than Minnesota even has. Uh, it just, it's not, so Lake Michigan was underwater at one time, and when the glaciers came through, it carved out what's left, so a lot of the water is there because it was under Lake Michigan. So the whole soil of Michigan is sand, and every inch of water is trapped, like under, uh, aquifers, like chalk stream aquifers, and it's just water everywhere, and it looks a lot like the Baltic area on the northern part of Poland where I had spent time as a kid, so... It's literally a trout, salmon, steelhead's dream. We have 365 days a year of steelhead. People are like, what? So when I was talking to these people yesterday, and I guide for, I could guide for steelhead 365 days a year. It's not like it's over with by March or it starts in October, like it does in the San River. I, I have a full-blown fall run, a full-blown winter run, and about two or three spring runs. So our spring fishery lasts all the way till early June. Memorial Day weekend, I can still go out and catch a dozen steel. Boom. These are winter fish. Because our water is so much more colder up there. We have a foot of snow on the ground. Mm -hmm. okay? so it is what it is. So you got four seasons. And then we have summer scamania still, which is July, August, September. We have Washington State, Washougal, summer scamania. Planted, half a million are planted on the St. Joe River every year. Uh, they come back 15, 20 pounders, 22 pounders, and they come in like stripers. And if you could have a good day scamania fishing, you're fishing shorts, sandals, t-shirts, no shirt on, casting streamers uh, to 10, 15 pound chrome silver steelhead that attack your fly like stripers. And it's just amazing. That sounds Or fantastic. you're fishing in the surf for them, you're surf fishing for them. And they run in July and August, so you could... Bring your family out, stay on the beach of Lake Michigan at a cool resort, go fishing with me in the morning, and then the afternoon go to the beach with the family and go to dinner at night, and it's just like, it's a different world. It's like being on an East Coast harbor on the, lake, uh, on the Atlantic Ocean, and you're catching chrome steelhead in the middle of summer. So we got that, and then we're the ground zero brown trout. We brought brown trout to the Western Hemisphere. So my new book, Brown Trout Atlantic Seven Nexus, is about brown trout coming. And they actually stock the brown trout in a creek that's right down the road from our lodge and then which is connected to the Paramarquette River system. So in 1883, we brought brown trout from Germany and we were the first plant of brown trout in the Western Hemisphere 
complete North America, South America. So we are the ground zero, the real first brown trout. And then we started planting Atlantic salmon back in 1875. And now we have a full-blown Atlantic salmon program on the St. Mary's River, Lake Huron, and Torch Lake, where my client and I own the world record landlocked Atlantic, which is still IGFA record today, 27 pounds. I guide for Atlantic salmon in October and November. This year we had a really tough year because of the cold. We had January weather hit us in the first week of November. Brutal. That's when we were up on the Salmon River. 10 degrees, 12 degrees, high of 21, and minus 10 wind chills. Two weeks of January in the first week of November, which is insane. I've never seen I was wussing out from the cold on the Salmon River, which I've never had to do before. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. And so, you know, it's it's weather-driven, but the bottom line, so we got that. Then we have, this year we got almost eight king salmon up to 30 pounds on the fly rod. We had the largest king salmon run we've ever had in history in terms of size. 30-pound, 20-pounders were everywhere. I mean, it was tough to find a fish under 20 pounds. It was impossible. And these are wild, reproduced king salmon. Our river alone, the Muskegon River, produces 1.5 million king salmon through natural reproduction every year. That's nuts. That's natural reproduction. We produce up to 800,000 wild steelhead through natural reproduction. So in, in our system of part of Lake Michigan, we're producing up to 11 million salmonids through natural reproduction. Because our rivers are chock full of gravel, like nonstop gravel. So when everything comes in in the springtime, there are a small and little par all over the place. So, and then we have brown trout. Our brown trout, we have uh, trophy brown trout regulations down in Muskegon. Our brown trout get up to 28, 30 inches too. Uh, so, and then we got brook trout. Almost every little creek around us has little wild brook trout. We have wild brown trout in every creek. We have wild rainbows in creeks. We have lake trout, we have king salmon, we have coho salmon, we have one of the biggest runs of wild coho salmon that were brought from the west coast in 68. Uh, what the hell else? Could, I mean, you can't ask for anything else. It's all in your backyard. One of the, the guys in TPFR, the local fishing club, Trent, said that Michigan is the greatest state for sportsmen to live in. Yeah, it, it kind of is because, and plus we got good hunting. The, the bass fishing is out of control. Lake runs smallmouth or smallmouth everywhere. You got muskie on Lake St. Clair. You got muskie in inland lakes. You got northern pike. You got every single game fish under the sun. If you're a warm water guy, you could have a field there. Really good beer. Really good micro beer. Uh, we don't have a really good economy like you guys, so I have to steal the money from the East Coast to come to us because we're still in an economic downfall ever since GM collapsed and it's right. not doing very well. It's a weird bubble here. Yeah, it's a weird we bubble here, but the East Coast is usually, I got a lot of clients from, you know, Philadelphia, New York, and this is still the, the capital capital income area of the, of the planet. But, um, so yeah, we got the outdoors, and, you know, if I wanted to drive home right here from the Georgetown Inn, I'd be home in 11 hours. I could take off at 7 in the morning, and I'd be home at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And that's really not bad. You don't have to worry about checking your rods, you don't have to worry about flights losing your baggage, just get in, get in your car and drive. It's a really easy drive. Yeah. So What yeah, would people fly into? Uh, Grand Rapids. Okay. Grand Rapids, Michigan, second largest city. And it's only an hour away from the launch. But yeah, so we got a lot up there. It's still great to have the whole world to go to and different spots to go to. And uh, shit, I'm going to go tomorrow, I think, up to Maryland and fish a little bit tomorrow with my son. Who's here. It's going to start dumping. Is it going to rain? It's good, yeah. Cold rain, because... The Northeast is about to get slammed yeah. with yeah, snow. It is what it is. We yeah. go to dinner up there. I might um, go out tomorrow morning if I can. You should. 
So that's it. So that's basically the, the Michigan story. That's where we come from there. Yeah. So question, I've never seen an Atlantic. And you posted some crazy pictures. When their kite is so, those males, how do you eat or move their mouth when their, their lower lip looks like Santa's sleigh and then their top lip is twice as wide? Yeah. It looks like they were punched in the face by Mike Tyson. They're beautiful. I think, I think kites are the most savage looking thing in the world. So yeah, so the, the bottom kite, the little tiny nub of the bottom jaw will actually pierce through the top of the mouth. So there's actually a little hole. You see some of the kites that I, some of the kites that I have loved before, the, the bottom is actually piercing through the top of the jaw or the upper part of the jaw. It's like a hole up there. That's just a sexual, um, sexual reproductive thing. Once they go back to feeding, the kite diminishes itself and it, and it sort of disappears because it, it, it's allowed to grow back and forth easily. And Atlantic salmon don't die because they could spawn many times and spawn up to you know, 15, 16 years in their lifetime. They can live very long, uh, if not longer, up to 20 years. Um, Pacific salmon die right away after they spawn and sexually reproduce. Yeah, the kites are pretty awesome. Uh, it's an awesome fish in so many respects. I always call it uh, God's perfect fish if there's, if there's ever a perfect fish created because it's beautiful. It fights like crazy. It takes a fly. It takes a dry fly. It, it, it's everything to everybody. It's, it's a fish of kings and queens and of nobility. Of, pre, of Atlantic salmon is 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 worship. So I call it civilization's founding fish. And I have if you if you like history, my Nexus book. A lot of people bought my book yesterday because they couldn't realize all the historical artifacts and things I had in the book. But I call it civilization's founding fish due to the fact that. It's been around for about 25 million years. So when Neanderthal man came out of the caves in northern Spain and in England and Scotland and, and uh, Scandinavia and France and Brittany, and he got out of his caves and he went to the creek to look for something to eat, he probably ran into Atlantic salmon. Once he learned to club it and kill it and eat it, and it was around with him. And there's a lot of great stories about Atlantic salmon, especially when the Romans conquered Gaul. Uh, when the Romans conquered Gaul, uh, they they saw uh, Salmo Salar. So it's called so Salmo Salar and Salmo Trude are exactly the same thing. Okay, they are exactly the same. Um, an Atlantic salmon looks like a brown trout. A brown trout looks like an Atlantic salmon. They could actually reproduce together. So in the evolutionary process, twelve million years ago, in the uh, thirty-five million years ago, excuse me, in the Eocene epoch, um, brown trout evolved first when the glaciers finally cut through the ice age. And then Atlantic salmon eventually evolved from brown trout and found their way to the sea and became became Atlantic salmon. But they still look alike when they spawn. They come to the same rivers. They hang out with each other. Thus my nexus connection. Thus my connection yeah. between the two. Uh, they could actually reproduce together. Is there a name for their salmo? Salmo. 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 Yeah. So the hybridization it, it doesn't happen often. It's very rare. If it does happen, it, it, the fish will probably become deformed by the time they're six, five, six, seven inches, eight inches. They can't make it. They will never reproduce again, so you'll never have a hybrid. So they become diploid, triploid. Their genetic structure collapses, and they don't have the ability to do that. But they can actually reproduce with each other and mess around up until you know smoke stage, and then they sort of become deformed and defunct. But what's really happening interesting now in the Salmon River 
my friend Fran Vertoliva is keeping me posted up there on the Salmon River. They actually have hybridization going on in the Salmon River in New York between the Atlantic salmon that they've been planting and the resident brown trout. So they have hybrids now that are actually living up to 10, 11 inches, which is really rare. And I got some pictures in my Nexus book on that, what's going on. So there is instances in nature where they, they go on. But the fact that they're similar, they're similar in a lot of respects that, that brown trout could be the most moodiest damn fish on the planet. They could either and be the most aggressive fish. It'll take a streamer 12 inches long like a muskie. At the same time, they'll sip a size 28 midge in one day. They, uh, and brown trout, are, uh, Atlantic salmon, are the same way. They either want a micro tube. I was just in Iceland for a couple of weeks in September. And we were fishing size 16, size 18 micro tubes and catching 12-pound Atlantic salmon on the surface. Incredible experience. And then you'll fish a size 2 or 2 up. So, you know, the extremes of their behavior is almost impossible to figure out at times. So they're both elusive. They're both moody. They could be the most selective fish on the planet. You could go to a pool in Gaspé, Bay, Quebec, and see 800 Atlantic salmon in that pool, and you could fish for two days and not catch one of them. And then somebody comes along on the next day, and the first cast is catches a 40-pounder, okay? Uh, they, they're very surface-oriented. They are very attracted to things on the surface. So Atlantic salmon take dry flies. Brown trout are forever looking up. They're the dry fly fisherman's best friend, okay? Um, they're, they're concerned with minutia. They're also concerned with... with they don't do well with predators, i.e. human beings. It's very difficult to raise brown trout in the environment. That's why you see states stocking a lot of rainbow trout and a lot of golden trout and a lot of everything. Brown trout don't like captivity. You have to keep them covered all the time. They're sort of like the problem child in school that never is happy with anything. That's a brown trout. That's an Atlantic salmon. The moody, the moody little guy that just doesn't like anything, doesn't want nothing to do with people, uh, but that's their life survival strategy. So everything about these fish, and I have chapters upon chapters in my book of life survival strategy. So their life survival strategy allowed them to survive industrial revolution, pollution. There's ditches in England where runs are under sewer pipes and city sewers. They're, they're sewer trout. They're, they're, they love fertility. I've seen them in ditches in, in England and in Europe and Poland and in mucky places where nothing should live. There's brown trout. As long as the water's cold... In Dublin, they're in downtown yeah. next to beer cans in the water. Yeah, so there you go. So there, so the, as long as the water's cold, they will be absolutely anywhere. And the, 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 sometimes the dirtier the water, the brown trout, and the fertility and dirty are, are interchangeable words. People say, oh, you want clean water. You don't want clean water too clean. So our mission is to have clean water. So, well, don't make them too clean. As my mentor, Vince Marinero, said the best thing that could happen to a trout stream is for a cow to come and take a big shit in it, or a big dump, okay? So, bottom line is, uh, sorry for the... the That's what Mossy Creek, they stand right next to it, and yeah. they'll just drop Our five cows years. are dropping dump, and they're right there. Uh, my, I have a whole, in my selectivity book, I have a chapter with me and Datus Proper, we're on Falling Springs, and we were watching cows walk through the river, and dumping and stirring things up, and the trout were staging, like, ready for the feed line, so... Because every time a cow walks through a river, it knocks up a caddis larva, mayfly larva, scud, sow bugs, and mingo, the feed lane, comes about. So, bottom line is, they are uh, modern civilizations founding fish and modern civilizations withstanding fish because they could tolerate pollution, they could t tolerate in, uh, strip malls on the Latorte, they could tolerate, they can't tolerate chemical spills like just happened. They, but as long as you got cold water and you got fertility, 
There's brook trout are the complete opposite. Brook trout are like very clean, pristine streams that are very sterile, very clean. They grow to be six, eight inches, and they reproduce at eight inches, and it's a whole different world for brook trout. Charms. But brown trout, the muckier the better, because they are carnivorous fish. They, you saw, I catch brown trout that are four inches long on nine-inch long double deceivers. I mean, um, it's just in your genetics to attack things. There's a shark of freshwater trout. But then there'll be a shark and kill a duckling. I have a chapter about chasing them on Amish farms where there was this one big problem was eating small ducks and stuff like that. And it sounds crazy, but they do that. They eat mice at nighttime. So if there's a shark of the trout, it's a brown trout and sort of an Atlantic salmon because what a shark has is, and there's a whole chapter on it, so the sensory neurotransmission response and the hearing of brown trout is so advanced that it's mind-boggling. That a brown trout can hear your door being slammed when you get into the fisherman's parking lot a mile away because it has neural masses in its skin, it has little tiny cilia cells along its lateral line and in its dermis, epidermis level, that it can sense any tiny vibration, which most trout or salmon can't even possibly fathom. Thus, it allows them to hunt at nighttime. Their vision is absolutely insane. Their vision is at the uh, most upper level of the spectrum, so blue-green light transmission, but the red-black ultralight, ultraviolet light transmission is unbelievable, thus allows them to hunt in dark environments. So what, right now, mousing is the big gig, night fishing for browns with big streamers is the big gig, because they perceive things by sound and optical transmission at the same time. And the way the rods and cone structure is set up for their eyes, uh, they are photophobic of light. They do not like light. On a bright sunny day, you're probably not going to catch brown trout. Nasty, rainy, shitty, cold, rainy days, you're going to catch brown trout. They're, that's the way they're built. They're built for sabotage to ambush. They're the kill artist predator of all trout. And that's why they grow big. That's why everybody wants a big one because they're tough to catch. And all my years, I, I could sit a person down my lot and say, hey, do you want to go catch a 25-inch brown tomorrow? And I said, absolutely. Everybody will do run through hoops because they're big. Oh, the biggest brown was 15 inches, 16 inches, 18 you know, it's just they're not easy to catch. And especially in big spring in the old days when those big cows were running around, you could sit there for weeks and months putting a little scud in front of them. They don't even look at the damn thing. And then just when you get your fly out of the water, there's a scud or a crest buckle come by and they'll sip it right up. They're very sensitive to all these things. So that's why people like the, the chase of those two fish, browns and Atlantics, is unbelievable. Atlantics, same thing. They're snooty. They don't have to eat. They come into the river systems to spawn. And their natal imprinting to the watershed, their life survival strategy is based on they're going to take a fly that looked like a caddis when they were little, a stonefly that looked like it's something, something that looked like a cephalopod in the sea, something that looked like a squid or a eel or, or an alley shrimp or something like that, and imitate something at sea, a uh, sardine, a bayfish. So it's all about peaking the mind. So it's a brain drain game. What you're doing is a brain drain game with the fish. So if, you, if, you're, if you're just an ignorant person, Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. 
And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. That does not seek knowledge, then stay away from brown trout and laying scent. If you're like, these fish are really appealing to scientists, to physicians, to lawyers, to doctors of all kind, to analytical minds, analytical minds, engineers, people that want to challenge CEOs, um, uh, financial managers. Everybody that likes the challenge. Will be will chase these fish. If you just want to dump fish, put a can of corn on, go to get a rainbow trout stock somewhere in Maryland, Virginia, or and there's nothing wrong with it. Or put a worm on and catch a bass, or, or do something else like that. There's nothing wrong with that, but. If you want the ultimate cerebral challenge, they'll keep you awake at night, tying new patterns, new designs. Brown trout and landing salmon are those fish, and steelhead too. Steelhead could be like that too. But you got to remember, steelhead's still a dumb rubber rainbow trout. A steelhead is probably the dumbest fish that ever lived because Will they really just eat anything on hook. They'll just really eat anything on hook. So, but so here's the gig. So steelhead, yes, they can be selected, but a, a fresh run steelhead will attack a piece of tinfoil, will attack gummy bears, will attack anything because it's an aggressive predator machine when it's out in the big lake. It only becomes selective once it gets in the river system and it turns into a rainbow trout, that it starts to see biological drift and midges and things, and then it starts to, uh, I don't know, I'm not gonna touch that. Oh, that little green thing, oh, it reminds me of a little cast when I was younger, bam, I take it. So, unlike it, the rainbows, why? Because rainbows are very relatively new on the evolutionary scale. Rainbows are rolling around for two million years. Wow, that's a short period of time when it compares to 35, 40 million years with mm-hmm. brown trout and scent. So, and brown trout have lived through the Industrial Revolution of Europe. They survived World War One. They survived World War Two. They survived Hitler's tanks. They survived bombings. They, they, they lived. The, the, the fact that brown trout still existed in Germany after it was pulverized to the end of the war is mind-boggling. So, these are the things that you realize the how these things been through. I think, and then they live in a in a little ditch that runs through a bunch of downtown houses in the middle of Stockbridge, England, where people are dumping their surfaces. It's almost like they're pets. So they, they brown trout have actually come to adapted human to beings, humans. adapted to humans like dogs have adapted to like, humans. Like pigeons in the city. Like pigeons in the city. They were wild birds at one but point. But, but they're the most, they're, they, their brain, brain capacity is probably more than a, a, a seven-year-old child. I hate to be so, I'm sure I'm getting letters <laughs> from somebody for that. But it's true. I mean, they're just absolutely brilliant. And they will fool you to no end. And there's just no understanding. If you look into their eyes and you look at their face and their type, and they got that villainous look on their face. They got that black bar. And, oh, you look at them and you love them so much because they're so beautiful. But then they got face like, you know, that you're never going to conquer me. I will be around long after you guys blow yourselves up with a nuclear bomb. That's the way they portray me as. They're the ultimate... Survivalist. Uh, enigma. They're the ultimate enigma of fish. Have you ever tried to catch a steelhead on just the most ridiculous thing you could come about? Yeah. Like, so flies, a lot, a lot of stupid bass flies and stuff that makes no sense whatsoever. So my summer steelheading is kind of cool because I finally got them to, I mean, get them to, but I finally provoked them enough with terrestrial foam terrestrials that I get them to eat foam beetles and foam hoppers on the surface when they're in our spring creeks along the St. Joe that are ice cold and the water's crystal clean and they're in really shallow water environments. I could throw a hopper on them and a beetle and twitch it or all kinds of rubber-like crazy things and they'll come up and sip it because they've turned into rainbows. So you can actually catch one on the drive. You want to catch a 15-pound rainbow on a dry fly in the middle of July or August or September, 
St. Joe River, you could do it. I mean, they, they will attack things. They're very surface-oriented, too. How far is that drive from Columbus? Columbus? Oh, shit, a couple hours, maybe. You have to do that. Yeah, yeah. That's How has the water quality changed since you were fishing out there as a kid? So the water quality's gotten much cleaner because of zebra mussels and quagga mussels, so the water quality's definitely changed. Uh, water levels fluctuate now with climate change, so we either have floods or droughts or droughts with the floods. So water quality is all over the map. The, the, the biggest thing that's going to impact, it's already in a silent way, is killing the fly fishing industry. Last year, when my book came out, I went to two weeks, 20 different states, and every state I went to, every fly fishing show I went to, had a massive snowstorm. Okay? This spring, we've had four floods on our river, which I've never seen before. We had a flood in October, which has never existed in 100 years. And then we go in the summertime, we have the hottest summers with droughts. So that's going to impact the fly fishing industry. It already has. It, people just don't see it. But the biggest change to the fly fishing industry is going to be climate change. It's messing up ocean currents. It's messing up your plan, your schedule. I had guys coming this year to have the best fishing they've ever had. And they've had for five, six years. And they come and we have full-blown January winter. How are you going to change that? Or they come at a time when I should have tons of water and I got no water. Or they come when there's... I mean, this is just... Every excuse that I'm making for the last two, three years is because of the weather. Mm -hmm. I got the flies. I got the techniques. I got, I got the knowledge and the know-how. There's one thing I can't control. It's weather. And the only thing man is the most distressed at, the most stressed to a human being is a thing that you cannot control. You can't control something. You're sitting in a room and you're hooked up to an electric shock machine. You can't control that and you're going to get shocked any time. You're, you're about ready to kill yourself. But I can't control what's going to happen next week with the weather. And guess what's affecting also? Yeah, it's affecting me, but it's also affecting the fish more. So when the fish should be running rivers, they're not because there's no water. When the fish run the rivers and there's lots of water, they do their stuff and they get the hell out of here. So migratory fish, I was just in Iceland and they had the worst drought in 100 years in Iceland. I get to Iceland when you should have tons of water that's in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It's in the middle next to the Arctic Circle. It always rains in Iceland. Last year, there was all, I was in Scotland the year before. It always rains in Scotland. They had a drought beyond comprehension. Everyone, I hear that 2018 was the worst year for salmon fishing in Scotland. Worst. And so was 2019, 2019 this year. But on the flip side, this year was the best year that the Penobscot in Maine had over... 1,200 Atlantic salmon come back this year, which is mind-boggling. So when, when they wrote off the entire restoration of Atlantic salmon in Maine and the Connecticut River, after millions and millions and millions of dollars was put into that system to restore the fish, this year they have the, one of the largest runs of Atlantic salmon they've ever had. Big, big Atlantic, not just little ones. So, but then in Scotland, there's a thing on, on uh, go, you know, go to YouTube if you can and punch in a couple of things. Punch in my video trailer, Nexus trailer. It has shows perfect images of Atlantic salmon taking dry flies on the surface, which just like a brown truck. But there's another one called Lost at Sea. It was done by a bunch of UK Atlantic salmon scientists and. Now they're finding out that, you know, when, when Atlantic salmon smolts leave Scottish rivers, uh, they're gone after 60 miles. After once they're out to sea at 60 miles, they can't find them. They're gone. They're dead. They're, 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 
their transmitters just shut down. They're either eaten by something or they just disappear off the planet. So there's the problem. Lost at sea, something's happening in the oceans, whether it's currents or predator change. We do know that the Miramichi, which used to be the very top producer of lang salmon in the world, now has zero lang salmon returns in the last couple of years because of striped bass and smallmouth bass. So the stripers have totally invaded, totally and invaded the, the lower estuaries and the Miramichi. So every smoke that comes out of the Miramichi is striper food. So this fall, I think they just wrote known the lower section of the river to kill off every single smallmouth bass and striper in that section to get rid of them. So I'm wondering what's going to start coming up here. Are we going to start seeing more redfish in D.C.? Tar- what about croc- crocodiles? Yeah, they're going to start moving north. Or we might go to global ice age. Right. So be careful. When, those, because, when the ice melts and changes the Gulf Stream. You know, so here's the gig. So with this with this climate change, so you can say what I am. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not political spectrum on any side, okay? The bottom line is here's the problem with ice age. With, with the global climate change right now, it's political environment. Just like D.C., impeachment, all this garbage that's going on right now, it's all politically driven. So one side says yes, one side says no, and one side says it's crap, no, it's not crap. There is climate change going on. There's no question about it. I mean, I'm talking as an agnostic independent right now, okay? The bottom line is climate change is going on. It's been going on for millions and millions and millions and millions of years, number two. Are we driving up the, uh, the global climate change by being terrible stewards of the planet, by polluting with carbons in the air? Yeah, could be, but verdict is not out yet on this whole thing. This is still inventive. It's still speculation. Yes, CO2 levels are going up. Yes, yes, yes. But you read my Nexus book, and you're going to get a whole new perspective on all this stuff that's going on today from a non-political environment because the EOC NEPOC, which was... 50 million years ago, 35 to 50 million years ago, the ice, the world was in the hottest greenhouse gases that it's ever been in. It was massive greenhouse gases to the point where there were palm trees in the Arctic Circle, there were palm trees in the Antarctic. And then in a very short period of time, we went to total ice age, giant frozen ball planet, complete ice lockdown, 100% like ice lockdown. And then when the ice retreated and the glaciers carved through and made the rivers and streams, that's when Salmo... The Laurentine Ice Sheet, where you were... So that was 35 million years ago. So guys, 35 million years ago, there's a lot of greenhouse gases going on. I'm a firm believer that what's going on today is nothing new that hasn't been going on. And it has a lot to do with the output energy of the sun. The sun is the chief dictator of what's happening here. The tilting of the sun, sunspot cycles... How much energy is being produced by the sun, how many different cycles of the sun we're going through, that and the jet stream have a hell of a lot to do more than anything in the tilting of the planet and the polar circles and the, and the, and the polarities of the earth in relation to the rotation of the galaxy. If you look at all these factors, you're not going to run around here talking about Green New Deal, okay? Green New Deal is a great concept, yes, but that's fictitious. And even if we did the Green New Deal, sorry Dems, I'm not trying to knock anybody down, but if, even if we did the Green New Deal, what the heck about China and India, which are 85% of the pollution? So even if we got our thing together, 100%, you got 85% of the pollutants still coming in. Now, is that still what's happening? Or it could be the combination. So it could be the fact that we are going to climate change naturally, and we are polluting on top of it could be accelerating it, which many biologists think, or climatologists think, that's happening. But what that's going to do to fishing, like to fishing, is that it's going to alter cycles of fish migrations. Fish migrate on temperature, 
water flow, temperature, water flow, habitat. And if they're going to be scheduled to come up river in September and there's no water there, then they're going to hold off till October or November or December until they get the water. And that's going to alter all of the changes. But guess what? Atlantic salmon have been doing it for 25 million years. Brown trout have been doing it for 35 million years. Uh, Steelhead have been doing it for 2 million years. And they've been through cycles before. So who's going to perish? Probably we will. Yeah. The fish will be around. We have nothing to worry about the fish. But we have to help the fish and protect the fish. And we have to start protecting Atlantic salmon stocks because they're down 60 70%. It's critical level right now. nice thing is we have the Great Lakes and other places that are exploring Atlantic salmon. The other biggest problem with Atlantic salmon is their love to death. God made a fish that is so perfect. Everybody loves Atlantic salmon. Everybody likes smoked Atlantic salmon. Everybody likes plankton Atlantic salmon. Everybody likes poached Atlantic salmon. It's probably the most world's most loved fish to death. So we've killed off most wild stocks in Norway and Scotland and everywhere else in the world. We're relying on hatcheries, aquaculture is destroying Atlantic salmon because they're polluting with lice and disease in the sea pens. So we have to go to close containment, which is happening right now. One of the largest salmon farms, Atlantic salmon farms in the country, in the world right now, is in Florida. It's being built in Florida. It's made of cylinders, steel, stainless steel cylinders with underground springs, and they're grazing Atlantic salmon in Florida, far away from any population that it could have. So it can be done, uh, and that's up to governments to make it happen. They're the most loved fish. I mean, when the Romans conquered Gaul back then, and they, they learned to smoke salmon from the Druids and from the Scottish taught them how to, how to um, smoke salmon. When they brought smoked salmon back to Rome, it traded equally with gold. So you either went to the market and you either had gold or Atlantic salmon. That's that was probably their best source of fats, oils, and omega-3s. Oh, and then the omega-3 came out. Now everybody's on the health page, so I'm going to have a nice piece Did you read salmon. Greenberg? Paul Greenberg's omega principle? No. It's depressing. Yeah, it's super depressing. What we're doing in the oceans because of these... Omega-3s, yeah. Yeah, like just eat arugula. Just eat, eat snakehead from the, from the Potomac or whatever. Eat snakehead from the Maryland. It's fish. Uh, so anyways, that's that's basically... So the book the book tells it all. The first chapter is kind of dear to my heart because this was my time in Polish Poland when I was um, living on the farm. But that, that taught me the whole cycle. But it, it really delves. If you like brown trout, that book is the Bible on brown trout right now. The reviews I got in Fly Fisherman Magazine and Trout Magazine and the other venturing anglers over the roof. Um, uh, and... It basically it basically teaches how to think about these fish in a different way and then how to apply what you did the brown trout to Atlantic salmon. And I talk a lot about foraging because I'm a trained chef. So I talk about going into the woods and doing the little... just came in. Yeah, there's midges hatching out here. <laughs> the hatch in the canal. Talk about foraging for mushrooms, doing all kinds of stuff. So the book is available at Amazon and uh, it's called The Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus. That's... Did you drop a bunch off with Richie? Richie sold them all out last wow. night. So he blew them out of there like no. Good for you. Is he serving turkey leftovers at all? No, he was. He had you know, a charcuterie bar and bourbon, big bottles of bourbon. Man, this was he had quite the spread last night. That's so cool. yeah, yeah. All right, I'm gonna ask a couple other questions now. Is there a fish species you won't target? Mm. Like something that just so grosses you out? Carp. And you know why? It's really bizarre, but they're a phenomenal game fish on the fly rod. Uh, I have guys that are passionate about carp. They're absolutely hard fighting. They're brutal. They're selective. They're everything that I like. But I grew up in Niagara Falls near these chemical plants that had these carp in them. 
and I used to, I was trying to catch, steal out and draw, and I'd catch carp, and I was just so pissed off. So, I, it's just, it's an inbred thing with me about carp, but I, actually, I don't like to, I, I just, I don't know, but they're beautiful fish. So, I mean, I, I'm not trying to say this to guys that like carp, but it's just because sometimes you like, but even I love smallmouth too, but when I was growing up in the Niagara River, I could go out and catch a hundred smallmouth a day when they were in next to shore, like big ones. And I just got bored with them. And, but I could go two weeks without catching a brown trout, and I got obsessed with them. So when you have too much of one thing, like guys that fish tarpon all the time get bored with them. Right. Uh, they want something else. So it's, it's, you know, if you eat steak every day, you want fish. If you eat fish every day, you want steak. So it's that whole thing. So I, I, would, I would target if I had to, but I just got so much of the other things. So um, you know, it's, it's quirky. It's a quirky thing. What's the strangest thing you found while fishing? In terms of, like, Just finding? Anything, yeah. Something that washed down river? Finding? Someone left behind? Uh, strangest, strangest thing, I think, was a, was a brown trout that was dead but still quivering. And it was on the Muskegon River, and we called him Fat Bastard. So what happened was we had a big spill. <laughs> this shows you also the, the aggressiveness of uh, brown trout. So we had a big spill over the gates. We had heavy rains, and the tail water was spilling over the gates and was pumping all kinds of warm water fish from the reservoir, bluegill and perch, and, and the brown trout was just eating everything that was coming out of that thing. And so I see this big 8, 10-pound brown trout coming down river and his belly up, but it's still quivering. So I go to net it, and it's still quivering, and I see a bluegill about the size of both hands together was stuck in his throat. And it looked like it was trying to eject it, but the spine, the fins, the spine on top was probably getting stuck in its throat. So I went in and did perform surgery on it. I clipped down the top of the spine, and we eventually clipped it out every once in a while, dipping the fish in the water to keep the, the gills going. So we, 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 we did the tracheotomy, and uh, we removed the bluegill from the fish's mouth, and we, we revived it for 15, 20 minutes, and actually saw so I performed... CPR on a big brown truck. That's crazy. Yeah, that was kind of fun. Uh, who's got the best sandwich in Grand Rapids? Uh, the best sandwich? Yeah. Oh, me. Okay. <laughs> what about, do you have any abnormal superstitions in life that your wife might think are ridiculous? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really big on moon cycles. I'm into the moon, so... Um, moons, I, I, I sit around and wait for a full moon, and it's sort of like a ritual, so I think I got werewolf blood in me. Full moons are good for migratory fish, by the way. If you plan any trip, make sure you're planning it two or three days later after a full moon. Okay. Our steelhead trips seem to be all on the full moon now. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Migrants. It's all about the pineal gland. What's the worst place you've ever fished? The worst place I've ever fished? In terms of... Uh, just the fishing sucked? You know, I, I, there's a lot of times... The, I've had the best fishing in my life in the gas bay of Quebec, and I've had the worst place fishing because it was all about temperature and weather. So gas bay Quebec, you could catch 30-pound, 40-pound Atlantic salmon, and then you go for three, four, five days. But it's all weather-driven. So when we compare fishing, we now have to compare equally weather. Everything is weather-driven so you could be sitting and looking in pools and you'd have everybody 12 rods in camp, 12 rods at the lodge, and nobody catching anything for four days, and you're seeing hundreds upon hundreds of lakes. I mean, everybody's like, I'm never going to do this again. 
and then you come back the next year and the water conditions are perfect and you're catching the best Atlantic salmon you're left there. So everything today, you, one thing you have to make sure, you have a fishery. So if you have a fishery, it's an established fishery, and you're going there, just because you have a bad summer day doesn't mean it's a terrible place to go. And that's the problem with our immediate gratification going where we have today. I'm never going back there again because I only caught one fish. Well, guess what? Conditions probably weren't right. Number two, you probably ain't very good because you suck as an angler. And number three, you're blaming the guy for something. Well, why don't you blame yourself for being miserable, okay? So if you're good and you're a happy person and you could appreciate things. So when you're having a bad day on a river, go into the woods and try to find some mushrooms. Go looking for some nature. Go take some pictures of some birds. In my, for, in my Nexus book, I have a whole chapter on foraging. When you're on the river, take a cigar, take a flask, take some good micro brews with you, and when fishing slow, go walking around the woods. Pick, pick, um, pick all kinds of wild edibles, wild ramps, uh, you know, fiddleheads. There's mushrooms. There's things. Learn how to identify moshes and lettuces that you could drink, eat from the rivers. Become a caveman again. Let's think nature. Think survival. That's the healthy food. That's the healthy food, and that's yeah. the food that mankind was evolved on. And just don't think about dropping in your car and going to a sub shop. You know, this is we gotta become we gotta become Cro Magnum Neanderthal man again if we're to appreciate life. Okay? And that's what I advocate a lot. And don't just pound the water to death. Go to the river, sit down. I spent probably five percent of my day fishing, ninety-five percent observe. I'll get there and I watch see this on steelhead rivers all the time. You walk into a river and you push all the fish next to shore out into the middle of the river, then everybody's lined up in the pool on both sides. And if you got there before the, the people came there, you'd realize that migratory fish migrate along the shorelines. So you already blew two or three nice holding lies as you walked out to hit the main pool because you're, you're, you're on a fast track to where? Where are you going? Where's the race? Take every piece of water and dissect it. And then I wait for everybody to leave and I come back and I catch fish that want to go back to their reverted lines. So slow down. Appreciate what you got. You're going to have more bad fishing to come than you're going to have good fishing. So you're going to appreciate the good days. The, the old days might not never come back. You know, the 40, 50 hookup days on the Erie Tribs and the 40, 50 hookup days on Salmon River, those days are long gone, okay? So appreciate every fish you get, treat every fish you got, and you'll be a happy person. And, and, and respect the fish. Don't treat them like it's just a monetary gain to your narcissistic, ego-filled, angling passion. Treat the fish as something special. And if everybody did that, I know I'm sounding like you know Mr. Buddha here, but the bottom line is fact. And, and we're going to have to start decommercializing these fish. Because right now they're at such a commercial level, everybody's chasing celebrity stardom for, for what's, the, what's the end result. You're all going to die. Well, the fish is going to be there for millions of years to come. Let's help the fish out. Let's pay more attention to the fish, and we'll be more happier. I, I, what do I do on my days off? I chase little six, eight-inch brown trout and, and, and crookies with a one, two-rate rod in little tiny creeks in the forest near us. So here's a guy that caught 40-pound Atlantic salmon, 20-pound steelhead. I go around with my two weight and toss little tiny ants and terrestrials to these little wild browns and brookies in these little tiny streams. And I have the day of my life. They're like, what are you doing? A guy that steals dreams, a guy that landed salmon? 
I find joy out of watching a little tiny brown and a rookie come to the surface and take the flight. To me, that is... That day I saw you on on uh, the ditch. Yeah, exactly. To me, that's that's nirvana. I, yes, I like big fish. Yes, I like the chase. But you got... Don't, don't take that for granted because someday you might not have it. I think we... that Why I do that is because it brings me more in tune to being a kid again. So when I was a kid, I chased little brook trout and little brown trout and mountain streams and little tiny environments. And I think as you grow older, you get more sentimental and you get more into your youth and thinking about things you did as your youth and those things bring you the satisfaction. And... It's okay, and I, I, you know, I hear people. People say, "Well, I, I'm into big fish now. I'm into big fish now." Well, that's only a passing phase. Trust me, because I was into big fish, and I'm still into big fish. But I find ultimate joy in watching little tiny browns, wild browns, and wild brookies, and little tiny forest streams coming up and looking at your ant and pounding it. And on a one-way, two-way rod, it's a lot of fun. And then I could go pick some wild raspberries, and I could go get some wild blueberries, and I could pluck around. So we need to be plucking around more and having fun with the environment, as opposed to just door to river to bed to door to river to bed to, to, to I didn't catch any fish today. Oh, it wasn't big enough. Ah, it's a small fish. You know, we, we treat this like a commodity. It's like we treat the stock market. Oh, I didn't make two million today. I made a million and a half. Okay. I mean, what? What's, what's the, yeah. <laughs> when all the fish and plants are gone, you can't eat money. What's the great? What's the gratification scale that we're on in fishing? It should be whatever makes you happy. So if you chase smallies or carp or snakehead or or Atlantic salmon or whatever, it, you you should be able to do whatever you want to do as long as you. Fishing is supposed to bring joy, and, it, and in some cases it brings food. I mean, I would I would live on the East Coast just to eat. I could eat fish every day. I live in Florida just to eat grouper and snapper. I live in Alaska just to eat halibut. I live in Maine just to eat lobster every day. I live off that stuff. But you got to remember, we're, we're beating the hell out of the oceans right now. I mean, oceans are in worse state than Atlantic salmon are. I mean, they're critical. You know it. You're a saltwater guy. You know what's going on right now. Everything's messed up. Striper's bad. This bad. Where's the oysters? No more oysters. I mean, every time I turn around, there's another catastrophic headline. And it's because we lost respect for everything. So if you could go back a million years ago and fish for brown trout, if you had a, a Bill and Ted's time machine, where would you go to fish a pristine brown or, or Atlantic salmon river? Jeez. I got like what's the, the prettiest, got the best kind know, of water? You know, the, the, some of the prettiest, prettiest water is northern Spain and the French Brittany and France and... Uh, Scotland, absolutely love Scotland to death. Um, Iceland is still the same, like it was 35 million years ago. So you're still fishing Iceland. Like, if you want to know what it was like 35 million years ago, everybody needs to go to Iceland because okay. Iceland's still the same. You got the falls, you got the volcanoes, you got the eruptions, you got the geysers. You're like immersed in 35 million years ago. Scotland is beautiful. Uh, northern Spain, Asturias, the northern part of Spain, is spectacular. France is absolutely one of the most beautiful countries on the planet. You think of Paris, but Wild France is... There's a series on TV called Wild France, and it's unbelievable the diversification that France has to offer. So I'm madly in love with those areas. Um, Scotland, UK, you know, Ireland is phenomenal. I love Ireland. Uh, these, are, these are like places that still have not been tainted too much. 
people kind of crazy, but you know the bottom line is they're still kind of natural. You know? All right. You are an absolutely fascinating individual. I wish we had more time, but we're gonna wrap it up. Very good. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much you. for your time. And thanks for coming out here. This is kind of yeah. a good place to do it. I'm glad we got to do it with your history here. Absolutely. Very I might have to go sneak off and get a falafel two blocks away. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.